0: To listener and welcome to michael and ethan in a room with scotch i'm your host and it says here ethan bartlett slash michael lily Lilli- stop Ball.
1: stop being so literal with the script just
0: ugh. well but like it's a script right like i'm supposed to that's, that's what a script is for that's what script means you're supposed to do exactly what it says
1: yes but the the spoken word has different powers and properties than the written word
0: Oh, you're right. So, like, the written word is really more suggestions than actual rules.
1: <laughs> In this case, sure.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, man, I was hoping to lay a pasture trap for you there.
1: Um, <laughs> oh, you like how I qualified it? See?
0: I, yeah, I did. You evaded you me almost as if you sensed it coming.
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so, uh... I'm Michael Lillian, though, by are. the way.
0: Gentle listener, yes, thank mm-hmm. you. I'm Ethan. I am, in fact, Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest slash Michael Lilienthal.
1: No, okay. Uh,
0: that, hmm? that. okay. Um, Just yep. It's fine. So, <laughs> welcome to what is technically our fifth quarantine special, even though we've been doing uh, the last three and this episode as sort of regular, regular old episodes where we are bound by the very strict rules and we're drinking, we are drinking scotch, even if it's slightly different scotch. Um, yeah.
1: But Blair Bowman puts them right next to each other in his uh, pocket guide to whiskey, so.
0: Yeah, I was, uh, you sent those those uh, pictures to me just before we started recording and I was quite impressed with us because... Um, what was it the uh, what was the, the the phrase he used the luxury train or something?
1: Oh, the uh, the um, it's the deluxe. Uh, or the decadent decadent line. Decadent line.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and he he sort of lays it out like a, a you know, elevated train uh, map like you'd find in um, many big cities. Uh, as mm-hmm. sort of here are the stops where you go. Um, when you're feeling decadent and the um first stop is uh the um sc- the scotch brand that you have hold of i believe michael what is yes what is that
1: uh the Glen Levitt. uh specifically the 14 year old single malt scotch from the cognac cask selection
0: and uh i get to um be on the second stop on the decadent line because i am drinking glen Mirangi, specifically the 12 year old uh sherry cask finish that they call la santa mm-hmm. um
1: i I, yeah. I do want to like just give this this little bit of um a, a humbleness to that too because uh according to his uh layout on this uh he well he he uh, Describes whiskey as like a tube map, like, you know, taking the subway. Okay. Um, and for Glenlivet Livet itself, uh, he says it's one of the busiest intersections on the whiskey tube map. From here, you can travel on almost any flavor route desired. Uh, and it is an sure. intersection of one, two, three, four different routes. So, I yes. mean, like, it was bound to be connected. Somehow, but it is pretty impressive right. that it's just like one stop away on his. Yeah,
0: no, that his it's list. still, it's still more impressive than if you'd gotten one of the ones sort of down the, down the line. And of course we, we did coordinate. We tried to uh, get the same scotch, mm-hmm. um, but you know, we're, we're at a, a point um, in history where if our worst, uh, problem on a given day is that we had to drink slightly different scotches from each other. We're doing pretty well, I would say. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no that's so uh, you know and they're both Highland Highland single malts so um, yeah, there was bound to be some intersection there but again, I mm-hmm. still I still say it was pretty impressive on our parts. Um, mm-hmm. So that said, uh, the next step is for Karen to read the rules. Um, Karen, please come in here and read the rules live but don't like change them like even though we are both in rooms that are several hundred miles apart just read them the the same (laughs) way you you always do
2: rule one once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink the scotch must not be mentioned at any time if anyone mentions it they lose rule two no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses.
0: And what happens if someone breaks the rules?
2: If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly.
0: Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. Um, so, with that said, uh, this... This is a very strict podcast, in a moment we will virtually clank, the rules will go into effect, and uh, we, will be, we will be bound by them. And, and if, if there's a little extra tension in the room right now, it's because if we uh, don't manage, if one of us doesn't sort of take the fall, Michael, and um, mess up over the course of this episode, we both do get punished at the end of it, as you just heard Karen say. Um, mm
1: mm-hmm, I know, I know. That's, uh...
0: It's, it's coming close. It is, it we'll is. We'll see. So, that said, slancha Schlank! Um... Okay, so... <clears throat> uh, I gave the, the listeners a tease last time. Um, you did. I... that's very naughty of you you know this is this is nothing if not a not a say no more sort of podcast um and I was because you brought up a very good point Michael that I mean in a sense we sort of co-stumbled into it over the course of our our evaluation last episode but you basically said ultimately Mm. this is not a novel um yeah and uh I I don't disagree inherently um Obviously, you're, you're getting into territory of like trying to define what a novel is, which much, much, right, mostly which, very boring messy. ink has been spilled um, on that exact
1: And topic. we've already discussed at length on this podcast how disinterested we are in talking about genre. And yet,
0: every single—we did it last episode—every <laughs> single episode, we end up talking about genre mm-hmm. somehow. Um, mm-hmm. That's true. But,
1: yeah, that
0: said— <laughs> Uh, you did make me think of, um, a work of literary criticism I read for fun three or four years ago. Um, nerd. Yeah, because that is what I do. Uh, don't make me ask you about your most recent reading in systematic theology. Um, if you're calling me a nerd.
1: You know, I was just listening to, um, The Darkest Timeline with Joel McHale and Ken Jong. And uh, it occurs to me that the dynamic on that podcast is very similar to ours. Uh-huh. Uh, you're Ken Jong and I'm Joel McHale. Well, um, I have not listened to this podcast. By which... <laughs> uh,
0: I'm still proud of that. <laughs>
1: uh, the point being, Ken Jong would frequently try to go off and talk about something serious, and then Joel McHale would just interrupt with something inane. <laughs> I feel
0: like we, we sort of... We both do those roles, but we sort of we, flip-flop. We... we... Um, yeah, we, we,
1: we flip-flop back and forth. I feel like I interrupt you more frequently. Well,
0: pointless. I'm actually blithering, glad to hear but... you say that because I kind of feel like I'm the one who interrupts you more frequently with stuff that isn't really relevant. So I guess as long as we Aww. both feel that way, yeah. Um,
1: it's like, that's like the makings of a good functional relationship. Yeah, I was
0: going to say that uh, if there was a gap in the audio, it was me deleting half an hour of the two of us um, just you know whispering sweet nothings into each other's ears <laughs> that would be it would be an us making out joke but like we've already established that we're not doing anything that um unhygienic um
1: no it's true social distancing is being maintained. speaking of
0: which i f- have failed to point out to you michael that uh the last round of of sort of main body episodes that we recorded um we obviously recorded well before uh quarantine came down but but they came out you know in the last uh month or two and they do like the the like marketing tactic that we had hit on for um listeners to spread the word about the show was to tell them to like sneak up on their friends and like put their earbuds in their ear with our show playing (laughs) and then uh run away or whatever um so in the yeah, in the show notes was... to i think all of those episodes i did put a disclaimer about uh why this seemed like a good idea at the time but now we know it's it's a very bad idea um
1: how we have learned and grown as people and podcasters yes that um
0: so uh northrop fry wrote a book in the 1950s it's very influential you um, if you're studying literary criticism probably at an undergrad or grad level um, you would be very likely to read at least part of it um, mm. wait did I say the name of the book yet? Uh, no it is called um, Anatomy of Criticism and if that's not the sort of title that just like makes you all hot and bothered then I can't even be in the same room with you um, which as, we, as we've established I also can't be in the same room with you unless my wife is listening um, <laughs> so uh, Fry in this book he, he, he sort of organizes it into four essays um, in the sense that something that's 50 to 100 pages long can still be called an essay um, and the final one in, in the book is probably the uh, uh, my favorite Um, and it is called Rhetorical Criticism Theory of Genres. Um, and this has nothing to do with sort of bookstore genres, right? Like Fry doesn't even mention the word murder, the phrase murder mystery. Um, he's talking about, (laughs) uh, um, he's, he's talking about sort of, uh, like the novel, is one of his genres um and uh he ends up characterizing four different um sort of uh what we'd call genres in the sense that a novel is a genre um and if anyone who's Mm -hmm. actually qualified to talk about literary criticism is listening i do want to apologize because i am surely butchering this but um my understanding is that he he uh defines four sort of fictive genres, and the novel is one of them, right? Um, and uh, okay. I, I don't want to attempt to summarize his understanding of what a novel is, um, because it's probably pretty close to um, what you'd think anyway. Um, but he he goes into sort of three other fictive genres, um, one of which he calls the, the Manipian satire. Um, examples of this include uh gulliver's travels by by jonathan swift um mm.
1: uh,
0: also gargantuan *Pantagruel*. he argues is is one of these um was named after an ancient roman writer and a manipian satire sort of can be disguised as a um as a novel but its purposes are very different the uh um, as in Gulliver's Travels, the, the characters sort of are not there to be characters whose inner lives you explore in any depth. They're there to be figures standing in for something else. So um, Gulliver's Travels, of mm. course, is very satirical, uh, attacking a lot of the the institutions and the, the politics of its day, um, as well as more stuff more sort of deeply seated in human nature. But like Gulliver... I haven't read the book, but I don't think Oliver probably has any like internal monologue where he's working through childhood trauma. He's just there to be a viewer sort of right. Um, Mm -hmm. Another uh, um, of the uh, 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 genres that Fry suggests is confessional. Um, And this is, the sort of genre where, um, and I'm not clear. I may need to reread this this essay. I'm not clear if an actual like memoir, like a nonfiction memoir, would fit in, but certainly fictional memoirs would. Um, I think one example Fry uses is an 18th century work called "Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner," um, in which is sometimes considered one of the first crime novels. It's about a A serial killer who um believes very strongly in the sort of uh calvinist notion that that once someone is saved they're always saved and they can't do anything like to lose that salvation so he Mm -hmm. uses that security to sort of go on a murder spree um but the 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 way it's written is very sort of like just someone sort of sitting down and pouring out their life story to you um Mm -hmm. there is a fourth genre. So we have novels, we have Nipian satires, we have Confessionals, um, and I do feel like there's a, or I know there was a fourth uh, genre that Fry defines, but I can't remember it, and the Wikipedia article about Anatomy of Criticism is not helping me. Um, but anyway um so uh um what am i trying to say i think that oh and and what fry does say is that like a lot of fiction maybe even most fiction these days would be sort of a mixture of these these genres you it's much more rare to get a pure example of any one of them versus an example of something drawing on uh uh drawing on multiples of them. So like I think the work of um of Thomas Pinchon is a really good example of something that's halfway between like a novel and a Manipian satire, right? So like Pynchon does some mm. character work and you know does some some stuff with characters inner lives but they also exist in this very sort of symbolic um uh relation to whatever era whatever location that they're in um to the point that they come to be sort of mm-hmm. symbolic figures rather than uh uh necessarily completely human or completely uh realistic figures to introduce yet another problematic and debatable term into the to the discussion here um <laughs> so michael in response to your questioning of whether this was a was a novel um does any of that help you sort of define for yourself what you think this this book is if it is not a novel <laughs> <laughs> Oh, should we should we just uh, delete that last uh, uh, 10 minutes or so? <laughs> uh, minutes?
1: I mean, it's very, very interesting, and I, I think it does bear more investigation. I just don't know if it answers the question necessarily sure. for me. Um, like, I like where he's going with it. I, I like the uh, general investigation into these varied genres and... Um, just even the novel itself and what a novel right. means because it is kind of a fluid thing what does it right. what is a novel um and
0: um yeah
1: yeah no one... so i mean i i think in, in a broad sense yes i'm okay with it being called a in novel in the sense that, that word but i think in general common yeah parlance that's what i was gonna
0: say. Of what You're a comfortable novel with it being called a novel in the sense that that word is almost meaningless at this point.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, to to a certain degree, I am a nominalist in many things, and so if you decide to define novel in a way that includes this book, I'm okay with it right. being called a novel.
0: <laughs> um, I do think, for myself, like... Fry's Fry's essay there really did sort of open up a window as far as like how to grapple, especially with more obscure, more complex texts that I couldn't necessarily define a a genre for or that felt like they were something beyond a novel. Um, And even when I was rereading Dream of Perpetual Motion this time, like, uh, you know, I could see. uh, We talked a lot last time about um harold winslow being an inherently not just not a likable character but a dislikable character right um and mm-hmm. you know again i i don't know if you agree but i would argue that it's quite clear that dexter palmer could have easily made him a likable character would know how to make him a likable character and therefore that making him so dislikable is a choice um
1: yeah oh yes so, I think you are correct.
0: Uh, then, you know, of course, you have to ask yourself, why? Why do you, uh, if you're an author, why do you make your main character actively dislikable? Um, and then sometimes it's...
1: Right. Which And it's it's a different sort of dislikable, too, from, uh, say, Humbert yeah, Humbert a, in Lolita, who is also deliberately he's a, dislikable. he's straight-up anti-hero <laughs> or
0: villain as protagonist, and... Um, there's a very structured set of reasons you do that and ways that you do that um and you're right like palmer even rejects that sort of a a structure um Mm -hmm, and again mm -hmm. so like my instinct is to ask why would an intelligent author make this as a choice rather than just sort of letting this happen as like a failure right um and Mm -hmm. that's that's when i you know when i'm asking myself that question sometimes that's when i'm tipped off to think about um genre or almost meta genre in this sense right uh the idea that maybe um harold winslow is not meant to be you could say even not meant to be a character um so much as he is meant to be a specific type of viewer and reporter of um you know, events, uh, in, to, to sort of serve the larger purpose of this narrative. Um, I, am not, I'm not necessarily saying Harold isn't a character that might be too strong, but, you know, you start thinking about why, uh, um, why someone would do this. Right. Um, yeah, you know, so again, like I think, There's a genre that i think i've heard called the intellectual novel um i don't know if that's if that's something i made up or not but um it's this idea that a novel among other things can be just sort of a way of exploring um ideas like i actually in some ways could almost get close to uh calling the light between oceans Um, one of these it's it's probably not it's certainly not meant to be but um Mm. the when we talked about the light between oceans being sort of a problem book right in the the sense that it's not meant to embody characters so much as explore the central intellectual dilemma um like that that's something a novel can be much more sort of clearly um and i i think that a large part of the influence of this book comes from that and i think some of it may be uh from what bloom calls manipian satire um that Mm.
2: these
0: these characters aren't so much characters as symbols or embodiments of certain intellectual um, uh movements or positions um or predilections Mm -hmm. which, you know, to take us full circle, is very Shakespearean.
1: Yeah, it is very much so. Um, A character is is beyond themselves, beyond their own uh, flesh, so to speak. Um, Which that does kind of lead into what I think is a question that I have about this if you're okay with me asking if you me a must. question um <laughs> if i must i must um how let me think why uh, what
0: like a course <laughs> in, in the news reporting <laughs>
1: Yep. <laughs> now we're gonna go with how gnostic do you think this um, novel is? And yeah. Let me preface that by giving evidence. Uh, I'll, I'll stop you from ask uh, answering that question until I have. Mean, I didn't.
0: I didn't think this was given you. Gonna take less than some exhibits here for you to ask. This
1: um. Um. So. The whole what one one exhibit a we will say um and i don't i don't intend to take these in any particular order um is astrid with her final yeah. art yeah exhibit um where her art is allowed to be considered so great by this one friend who is kind of a laughable character um as Astrid herself right. dies, um, leaving behind her body so that the art right. may go on. And there's, of course, that question in there of, um, did she say something absolutely absurd that has some obscure reference to the art itself? Or was right. she actually pleading for her life? Um, and I think the narrative itself is leading us in one yeah. direction on that Uh and I, I think in a direction that is decidedly sure. not Gnostic. Um, also, uh, you've got Prospero himself with his philosophy of um, trying to make right. Miranda perfect. And the idea of this perfection is um, leaving the world behind. And in fact, as uh, Harold ultimately interprets what the perpetual motion machine is, uh Miranda sure. being able yes. to leave her body behind, you know, totally being disembodied from herself. Um, and there is also, uh, I, I'm I, I'm really not going to do a Names <laughs> with Michael on this, um, because, like, a lot of the names are already Shakespearean yeah, and, and, you just, and such. If and, you want Names with Michael, um,
0: just read The Tempest after you read this book, or before, either way. Read
1: The Tempest, yeah. Um, but uh, the name of the place where they live is called Zeroville, but yes. it's spelled with an X. And in Greek, that I mean, that could be a couple of I mean, different the, things. The obvious reference, the obvious uh, like, there, surface reference, is
0: the idea of Xeroxville.
1: Sure, Xerox yeah, being yeah. like that copy machine Which sort is, of thing
0: really where i've always gone with it but
1: which is okay there's that but then there's also some greek that that it could be and here are the two options if you're going ancient greek best guess um in fact probably what it would have to be in ancient greek is it's the word for dry land uh so this is the grounding the dry land also if you were bad at greek which i don't think dexter palmer necessarily is I like, I don't think he's a Greek scholar would, but I think he would be smart enough yeah, would know <laughs> to research a little better be bothered um, it in his book. If but if 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 you wanted a Greek word for something and you just typed into Google translate this word into Greek what you might wind up with is if you typed in what is the Greek oh. word for to know and you might come up with zero but that's modern Greek and it's not even the sure. most common word for to know um and it's it has no basis in mythology or or ancient greek either but anyway so there's that and i don't think it's that one but the whole dry land yeah, idea i think could that's connect interesting. that you know this is the earth well, that's being the, left behind it
0: connects to the tempest you know of course as well the the first yeah. act first and in some mm-hmm. senses only actual action of the play is this crew of people being saved somewhat providentially by or this shipful of people saved that way by dry land from a, from a mm-hmm. storm at sea. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, and so just to define Gnostic, both for our, our discussion and for, uh, Oh, sure. Uh, any of the gentle listener who may need a refresher. Um, are you talking, do you mean sort of that base idea of Gnosticism that, um, posits a a an inherent division between like the soul and the physical body or the the realm of the intellect and the realm of the physical and says that the the physical is evil and must be transcended um in favor of the spiritual or intellectual is that right sort of the basic uh definition that you're going with here
1: yep pretty pretty much yeah um basic pared down definition that i'm more or less going for here um,
0: if anything uh and i was thinking this even when you just sort of asked the thumbnail version of the question before you got into some of your own um thoughts on it here i was already thinking that if anything i think this novel could be a criticism of gnosticism or a critique of it um because very sort of as you pointed out like that uh uh all of the the artists the intellectuals in this novel including the author of the novel himself um are portrayed as sort of foolish like like these people in this in this uh you know very small very circumscribed like ivory tower world um and you know mm. again one of them one of them because of her own uh, uh dedication to like intellect and and intellectual pretentiousness um literally lets her friend die while she's you know pleading to be to be uh rescued um and then in uh Mm -hmm. in the case of prospero you have uh sort of you know on the one hand you have the academia that's portrayed as as foolish and in the case of prospero you have this this sort of gnosticism almost weaponized and given teeth by the the commercial success he's had by the by the money he's able to pour into um sort of realizing this philosophy and you know that has really quite disastrous and and um miserable and even evil effects on uh uh you you get both society as a whole um you see sort of the the detrimental effects of a, of this um you know industrialization on society you see it on the person of his daughter miranda who of course in an effort to um to perfect mm-hmm. or to help her transcend the the evils of the flesh um you get a very uh, uh pre-socratic set of set of critiques um Embedded in the, uh, um, what am I trying to say? In the uh, sequence with with the uh, the sculptor, um, that idea that you know you can never, you can't even set foot. Not only can't you set foot on the same river twice, you can't set foot in it once because it's always rushing away from you, like as soon as the sculpture finishes a perfect portrait of Miranda, it's her from five minutes ago. Um and uh the the impulse to fight all of those all of those ideas, the impulse to transcend um uh physical Mm -hmm. time and and the physical realm, um if if there's a if there's a portrayal of evil in the book, that uh, quest to transcend the physical like the the harder that's pushed the the greater the evil um if that's not too strong a word to use um so yeah no i think and again i think that's maybe one of the the lingering things that that uh even after this many readings and this much distance that i think still probably uh has a hold on me for for this book um is is sort of that idea sure um and it it actually very good it, that dovetails with yeah, another um, thing that I thought about this book um and it's, it's okay which I thought of as a criticism but now that I'm now that I'm talking about the anti-gnostic thing I don't know if it's not completely intentional but it's the idea that this book is uh, Possibly one of the least ambiguous works of intellectual fiction I've ever encountered. Um, like if you if you think of this book in comparison to, say, a Gene wolf novel, right? Um, and Gene wolf is, of course, the extreme opposite end, right? like uh, wolf Wolf would mm-hmm. never have have had character had any character confess to. Harold that they were doing something that prospero uh set them to right like he he would just have have harold stumble through Mm -hmm. these these uh scenes confusingly and and you know uh in some other scene he would drop some stuff about prospero as the puppet master or whatever and then the reader would be left to join those two things together um whereas uh uh you know prospero has probably the closest thing to like a climactic villain speech that happens in this book is when harold comes to the rooftop and and prospero is literally trying to to coach or direct or puppeteer him through the killing of prospero right um and he lays that out very explicitly yeah uh but in the sense that like Harold Bloom has said that the novel is an inherently gnostic genre that, that it's a surface text that inherently draws you into um, uh, sort of search out its, its secrets, right? Like the initiate two people reading the same novel, one of them initiated in whatever sense you want to call that into the, the mysteries or the, the gnostic end of things will get more out of the same text than the mm. person who's clueless um it almost makes me wonder if yeah if Dexter Palmer is even trying to sort of reject the hat uh uh in this which is not something mm. I ever would have thought of unless you'd asked me that question and forced me to sort of go down this intellectual uh, <laughs> rabbit trail or whatever
1: sure Well, there's um, part of that that um, dovetails a little bit with another thought I had about this book um, is some of the uh, Platonic roots to Gnosticism, um, just the idea of the ideal and all of that, which itself just feeds into this idea of Greek philosophy, and there is certainly a great amount of Greek philosophy that Dexter Palmer is aware of. Um, I'm especially thinking of some of the wackier... Uh, zanier bits of uh, Zeno and Parmenides Um, on page 262 in the book uh, it's in like this dream sequence thing where this wizard is talking to Harold um, and says uh, talking about the queen who has to jump off the tower uh, he says first she has to fall half the distance between the tower's roof and the ground he says Then she has to fall half the distance that's left, then half again, and so on. And she has to fall past an infinite series of halfway marks you see stretching in front of her like all of unspent time. So although you'd be inclined to think that she'd dash her brains out on the ground a few seconds after she jumped, in truth, she will perpetually fall, but she will never reach the ground. Which is exactly their thought on this, which just, like, gets back to that whole idea of perpetual motion. Their point in those, um, Zeno's point, especially in, in these, like, um, intellectual sort of examinations or thought experiments, whatever you want to call exercises it. Uh, is to deny <laughs> the exist thought experiment. Thank you. That's the term I was looking for. Is to deny the existence <laughs> sure. of the material more or less that the world can't possibly exist. Right. <laughs> is more or less the idea behind that, which. That itself also feeds into this idea of if this stuff can't exist, there has to be something beyond it. Um, And so the extreme here is to just say, no, it doesn't exist. Whereas in the end, what Harold winds up doing by speaking and therefore creating is embracing this material in connection with the ideal could, or uh, spiritual or almost what have you. Maybe
0: Again, to reference a, a poem I don't think I've read all of, um, you could almost uh, see like a Hound of Heaven uh, motif going on where essentially this book is laying out his okay. um, fleeing of the physical, fleeing of human connection, um, his pursuit of something beyond that or, hmm. or transcendent of that and sort of the the uh, um oh what am I trying the, the, whatever the opposite of inertia is the stasis I guess that that leads him to and the the failures that that leads him to um hmm. yeah I don't, I don't I guess I don't have a, a button on that thought sure
1: but. well I I, I was I was thinking myself of sure. uh, Auden's yeah. poem again here, "See in the Mirror," with the the dichotomy of Ariel and Caliban, um, and in in the end there, uh, I mentioned this in the last episode just a little bit how I had kind of traced the three storytellers right. that Harold meets on his way to to rescue Miranda, um, on top of the the three chapters in in the poem. Um, Now the first storyteller he meets Is Ferdinand uh, Who works in the boiler room Um, And Ferdinand himself In the Sea in the Mirror Is one of those uh, In chapter 2 And his his poem it's really short i'll read it really quick flesh fair unique and you warm secret that my kiss follows into meaning miranda solitude where my omissions are still possible still good dear other at all times retained as i do this from moment to moment as you enrich them so inherit me my cause as i would cause you now with mine your sudden joy two wonders as one vow preempting all here there forever long ago i would smile at no other promise than touch taste sight were there not my enough my exaltation to bless as world is offered world As I hear it tonight, pleading with ours for us, another tenderness that neither without either could or would possess. The right required time, the right, the real right place. Oh, light. One bed is empty, Prospero. My person is my own. Hot Ferdinand will never know the flame with which Antonio burns in the dark alone. Um, I mean, it's very passionate. It's very. um, Sure. Grounded? Maybe? Um, Which is more or less. The aspect of that story that Ferdinand tells to sure. um, Harold, he, his his whole story <laughs> is essentially yeah. how he possesses Miranda, <laughs> um, and this the Virgin Queen who is unable to be possessed, and that's one of these these themes here of, of the Virgin Queen right. herself, which we haven't even talked about that concept really. Um, that that you know by possessing her, you've denounced the potential and therefore all of these possible worlds are destroyed right by that but Ferdinand is okay with it <laughs> it's like this right. this is this is the world I want and it's I'm gonna take it uh you know being kind of braggadocious a little bit about his um conquest of, of Miranda here sure. um and then the next one is the artist which i'm seeing the connection that that artist is prospero's ariel even though there's no character ever named ariel in the book um and i think that's intentional um this artist who's trying to capture miranda in perfection is ariel because it is ultimately that artist who winds up um disembodying miranda and making the perfect art of miranda if if that is in fact what happens and i don't see any real argument to the contrary um but um there's, there's that line um, that uh, Prospero says to Ariel in chapter one there, for sure. under your influence, death is inconceivable. Um, wh- I mean, that's, that's exactly a, exactly what's, what's going on there. I even, um, I can't find exactly the page, but I did write almost an entire <laughs> stanza of chapter one at one point in here. Um, where uh, and, and I found it in Auden's poem here um, Prospero saying As if through the ages I had dreamed about some tremendous journey I was taking sketching imaginary landscapes, chasms, and, sk- and cities cold walls, hot spaces, wild mouths, defeated backs jotting down fictional notes on secrets overheard in theaters and privies, banks, and mountain inns and now, in my old age, I wake And this journey really exists, and I have actually to take it inch by inch, alone and on foot without a cent in my pocket, through a universe where time is not foreshortened, no animals talk, and there is neither floating nor flying. Um, Which I think could be pretty much just lifted and put into this book itself. Um, And the third storyteller that Harold meets is Caliban, which... Uh, Caliban has the longest chapter of Auden's poem, and that's Chapter Three. Yes, um, and it's all like a prose poem thing, and he's taking up he 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 has this right. bit where he says, "I speak your echo," talking to the audience. Um, basically, he's the voice of of the audience here, and for sure, when you meet Caliban, he is the most reasonable right. character. He makes the most sense (laughs) in Dream of Perpetual Motion, um, until you finally get to this point. I mean, he's still the monster, and then you get to this point where Prospero (laughs) says, "Yeah, his brain is a sham. (laughs) Uh, He he's he's typing. This typewriter isn't connected to anything. He's just he's just making all of this up, which." I think is maybe one of the most masterful strokes that Dexter Palmer makes in this novel is having this character. That's like finally someone I can relate (laughs) to and, Oh, you're just going to tear this rug out from under me and tell me that all of that is completely meaningless. Um, Totally made up. Um, But just that, that idea of, um, and I think Dexter Palmer just, just, they're, they're not just with those three storytellers at the end, but with various other aspects throughout this this book,
0: I think yeah, Dexter like, Palmer must have read this honestly poem occur by Auden. To me, um, um, throughout even this reading of of this book, um, I guess partly just because probably if it had, it was just masked by me, assuming that it was a Tempest reference, you know, sort of back to the source. But like everything you've said about about oh, sure. in the mirror in these last two episodes has like added up to convince me that you're right about that that like he must and i mean again you know this man is a he's a he's a phd he's a smart guy from <laughs> he's a phd uh you know when you when you write a even a master's thesis much less a, a phd thesis um whatever thing you uh are writing the thesis about um you're meant to familiarize yourself with every piece of scholarly literature about that thing right um and that begets a certain mindset where like you know if if you're dexter palmer you have a phd you're writing this book you're at the very least gonna like look up a, a list of major literary critical works about the tempest um like at the very least that's gonna happen so yeah. based on that it is at the very least and again that's not to say if you if you specialize in Shakespeare the Tempest you almost certainly at a PhD level will have I would venture to say will have read see in the mirror or at least know of it and be familiar with it so um, that's all just to say it is extremely likely right um to the point that, it not ha- that him not at least being mm-hmm. familiar with with the sea in the mirror and making these choices with uh with that knowledge like seems much more unlikely much more improbable i would say
1: oh, one, one more thing that uh i think yeah. solidifies this is the postscript to the sea in the mirror uh-huh. um which is ariel to caliban Uh, And I'm just going to read the last stanza of that. Never hope to say farewell for our lethargy is such. Heaven's kindness cannot touch nor Earth's frankly brutal drum. This was long ago decided. Both of us know why can, alas, foretell when our falsehoods are divided what we shall become, (laughs) one evaporating sigh. I. Um, And, I mean, you've got that whole, at, at the end of A Dream of Perpetual Motion, the impression is that... Harold and Miranda right. are going to be reunited in some way, or at least reconciled in some way. And that's more or less what's happening here. Harold himself, by the, um, the closeness with Caliban, by his connection to Caliban, right. does more or less become the Caliban. Um, and Miranda, by becoming the object of the art, uh, the subject and the object of the art, right. is the Ariel. Um, and right. so you've got that unity coming to the end there um, which that itself all of that is again tying back to this idea of, of Gnosticism that Gnosticism right. would totally forsake Caliban for Ariel um, and some of that is uh, informed by a, a, a misreading of the Platonic ideals uh, and the perhaps the these um, right. Zeno uh, Parmenides, things of um, what are they called the 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 euclids no the elucids <laughs> what are they called starts with an e i don't know like i don't that. know
0: what the word is wrong, um, i wish i
1: did anyway yeah that but sure. uh that that branch of greek philosophy um they were more or less sure gnostic in a degree but like proto-gnostic um in some ways
0: there's there's also the question of just how gnostic plato was um and socrates if you assume he's not sort of a creation of of plato because um well you know the the uh metaphor of the cave and or the allegory of the cave and um certain other elements and and the idea of the forms like lend themselves to gnosticism um the platonic philosophy doesn't get truly deeply gnostic until the neoplatonists who live several hundred years after plato dies and um sort of have a radical interpretation of his philosophical works um
1: right well and and the thing about yes, gnosticism exactly. is gnostics <laughs> can find gnostics in anything <gasps> right even john's gospel which was written against proto-gnostics
0: right exactly
1: still is considered Um, gnostic by gnostics
0: so you know you do have to be careful when kicking around that term even with the the pre-socratics and uh um some of those guys uh but again that you know any anywhere that you can legitimately or illegitimately see a distinction between spirit and flesh or intellect and flesh um, you can sort of read a Gnosticism into it if you want mm. to um, like, mm-hmm. that, that said I don't know whether that's like guilt after the fact to call you know Parmenides and, and, and some of these guys to call them proto-Gnostics um, yeah I forgot what the thread was that we were we were uh, crawling yeah. along, but <laughs> um,
1: we might have exhausted so it. So <laughs> we, um,
0: for multiple reasons, should probably be wrapping up. Um, I have one thing that I just want to throw out there, and like we can't discuss this. Like I just want to say it because um, we need this episode to be an hour long and not two hours long, but. Um, the other thing, other than, and you did you did actually a really nice <laughs> like like condensed version of reading this book onto the Sea in the Mirror and onto the Tempest itself. Um, but if we did a third episode, the thing I would want to explore besides that is this idea of yeah. Miranda, um, because I don't think I I again sure. you know prognosticating what an author thinks I doubt dexter palmer would consider this a feminist work but again phd princeton you know in the 21st century like he's going to be well aware of feminist criticisms um and this idea of miranda the the virgin queen the uh um uh what is the other thing she gets called in one of the chapter titles uh Oh no, it's just Virgin, Virgin Queen, but and the obsession with purity uh, and um, uh, almost the dare I say fetishization yep. of it um, shown by these two old men, the uh, the sculptor and her ostensible father. Like, um, there's a whole world of uh, right uh, stuff to discuss there. Um, especially reading it back onto, uh, possibly Auden, but definitely Shakespeare, um, who's, you know, Shakespeare's female characters are always far, far smarter, mm-hmm. uh, than they should be given the, uh, um, time and culture that Shakespeare's writing in. And, um, <laughs> you know, so I think there's a whole network of things there to explore. um, which you know there's always something we don't we don't get to bring up and explore and i think that's going to be that for uh, for this set of episodes um but i just at least wanted to mention it uh that i don't think it's a, mm-hmm. a, a sort of an unconscious like fetishization on dexter palmer's part i think everything about her character is very sort of um calculated and critical um you know whether that succeeds, whether he whether he unintentionally falls into the trap he's trying to avoid is, of course, um, something you can you can debate. But I think that that's there. Um, so that was my thing that I really needed to mm-hmm. at least mention before we wrap up. Michael, do you have any any last things you, you need to mention?
1: Well, yours was great. Um, the only other thing I wanted to to say is just a thought I had regarding, yes. um, you know, the highlight reel of Michael and Ethan uh, with all of our Tempest episodes. Oh, course, There's one yes. more to add in there, and that's our episodes on Station Eleven. Um, so yeah, we we real have we really have um, a deep obsession with the Tempest, it seems, um, and I think. Yeah, there's good reason so. for I was it gonna it's, say it's, that it's a writer's play much as we you know?
0: definitely have an obsession with the tempest, um, uh, station 11 came out more recently than dream of perpetual motion did so um, you know as far as something like it did, that, I'm not did. positive but by what like four um, years or you something? know we're, we're in good company as far as published uh, you know published very skillful authors go so I feel pretty okay about that actually mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> very good um yeah all right all. well it's the uh last episode in the set so we have some business to take care of we will try to uh um i think try to sort of work through it as quickly as possible while doing justice to how much we need to suffer so um we no one lost michael yeah <laughs> Mm-hmm. Which does mean everyone lost. Uh what are you what are you gonna do to me?
1: Yeah, no one no one lost, which means everyone lost. <laughs> uh alright, I've got a punishment for you, Ethan. Do you have a copy of the Tempest close at hand?
0: Uh I probably do. I'm sitting in my book room, but I'm just going to look it up. All right. Go
1: to Act 5, Scene 1, and jump to line 88. And there at Act 5, Scene 1, starting at line 88, you have the song that Ariel sings Uh, as she's dressing Prospero.
0: Where the B sucks is that?
1: Yep, that's exactly it. Now in in the oh. the late nineties, early two thousands, there was an opera composed based on the Tempest I hate you. Uh, by Thomas Adès. I hate you. And famously, you. Ariel in this rendition is a coloratura soprano. Um. I hate you. S- sounds like a mosquito. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Ethan, I want you to sing this speech as though you were a coloratura soprano or as if you were a mosquito.
2: All right. <laughs> Where the bee sucks, there suck I. In a cowslip spell I lie. There a couch when owls do cry.
0: That was me holding the, the line like very, I was a soprano. Very, very good. <laughs> on the baps back I do fly after summer
2: merrily 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 shall I live now under the blossom that hangs on the bough.
1: thank you thank you very much
0: um wasn't to be fair as bad as uh some uh singing you've had me do
1: <laughs> oh yes I know <laughs>
0: Alright, well, I had a different punishment that wasn't as good as the one you've just inspired boy. me to do. So, Michael, do you have a copy of the title? I do.
1: Uh,
0: please go to the epilogue, oh. spoken by Prospero. Yep. Um, and let me just, uh, just draw my utter nonsense card here. Oh, no, no, it's definitely going to be... I need you to speak this epilogue in your best Sean Connery.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, My best Sean Connery. I'd watch that rendition of The Tempest. (laughs) Now my charms are all o'erthrown. What strength I have is mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true I must here, confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got, and pardon the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell, but release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair. Unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself, and free your faults As you from crimes would modern be Let your indulgence set me free
0: Well I have to admit Um Now it wasn't a good shot No it Cuttery, wasn't a good shot, Cutter. Uh, <laughs> but it was better than I hoped oh, it would be Oh that's good And your actual like oral interp was better than I hoped it would be Because I was hoping you'd be distracted by trying to do a good shot, <laughs> Cattery So like that went better for you than I had hoped, but you know, you pays your money, you take your choice. <laughs> um, yes, very good. You're Thank welcome. You. All right, so uh, let's uh rate the scotch okay. quick. Michael, how do you feel about your Glen Levitt?
1: Oh, my Glen Levitt. Okay, so Glen, Glen Levitt is just always a good scotch, I think, just about any bottle of glenlivet whatever cask you get it from uh the 14 year was interesting um the cognac was rich and deep um this uh like you you always hear about toffee notes in cognac or in scotch sure. and i'm never quite sure what that means but in this one i get it oh man is okay. there toffee in this uh toffee and fruit <laughs> toffee and fruit was very very interesting uh in in this scotch interesting yeah um and, and that makes it kind of a unique scotch for me. Uh, I, I, I don't think I'm ready to yeah. give it five stars because you need something amazing to give me five stars. This, now, this was amazing. I'm going to give it a good solid four uh, because I'm going to come back to this. Okay. Uh, and I feel like the Glen Levitt is always a reliable scotch. Um, so it, sure. it's it's not as as peaty, as smoky as we sometimes like our scotches to be. Um, Right. But uh, it's it's definitely interesting and something that I like to contemplate.
0: Sure. Um, Good. So I, uh, as mentioned several times, I was drinking the Glenmorangie twelve year old sherry cask finish, mm-hmm. um, the the named named the Lasanta, um, and it was quite an enjoyable scotch. Uh, it was. Mine also was, like, much lighter. It was, it was it's almost a very light scotch, but in a good way. Um, there was very little peat, very little smoke, but there was, the sherry cask gave it a nice, like, I guess I want to say grapey feel, like stone fruits. Hmm. Um, uh, if I was picking out a scotch to just, like, sit on the deck on a summer dra- day and drink sort of languidly, this would be towards the, the top of the list, nice. I would say um now that said it didn't have quite the the depth and complexity i look for in a really top tier um like really interesting scotch but i'm gonna give it a solid 3.5 so like you know to me 2.5 is like average very basic baseline um you know three is three is a little better than average and this is a little better than that so Hmm. um yeah i would you know if if uh, if, you, if a Highland scotch finished in sherry casks is like interesting to you, this this is definitely a good one to uh, go ahead and try. I would say cool. Um, or again, if you want a really nice scotch that's that's light and doesn't like, you know have that good like midwintry smokiness to it, like this is, this is this is a good one. All right. Um, along different lines, sort of like you said about yours from how I prefer my scotch but -hmm. related like my most of the time but still for for outside of my wheelhouse it was a a very good very good um all right michael on a scale of buy borrow or forget about it how would you rate the dream of perpetual motion
1: (sighs) i was afraid you were going to ask me that question um
0: (laughs) is it because it's in the script and i always follow the script to the letter
1: (laughs) i know um I'm, I'm wavering between borrow and forget about it. And my reasons okay. for so doing are uh, connected with that whole discussion of what a novel is. Because I think if it doesn't grip you, and this isn't really the sort of book that's going to grip you, you might not mm-hmm. finish it. Sure. Now, if it intellectually intrigues you, you might just... What I will say here, sure. this is who I'm going to recommend borrows it. If you are interested in The Tempest itself, borrow it. Because I think there sure. is... I, I I really do want to just write on the inside cover of this um, that this is a, a commentary in novel form on The Tempest. Because in many ways, I think that is yes. exactly what it is. I think that's its greatest benefit. Um Sure. That it, it, it comments. I think it's a
0: commentary on the Tempest combined with one on the modern world. But y- y- well, yeah, and that's, that like,
1: that's I, I think those, that's thing. the same thing. If you have a modern commentary on the Tempest, it, it should be yes. <laughs> one on the modern yeah, world. Yeah, in that sense. Yeah. Um,
0: I completely agree with you, then. And
1: so I, I, I think that's that's where it really gets its value is is in that commentary sort of faction. You're not going to get a great adventure story in here. It goes out of its way to deny that. Um, right. And... So treat it like an experiment. Um, come into it as right. an experiment. Uh, if, if our discussion hasn't intrigued you to read it and you didn't read it beforehand, then just forget about it. You're not going to lose anything by it. Um, it's a, it's yeah. a good book. Uh, and and I, I, there might be occasional times in the future where I could see myself actually recommending this to specific people. Um, but don't feel bad sure. if you're not interested
0: yeah i think largely i agree um i have because of my own predilections i have leaned towards buy but i have also leaned towards forget about it and i think that places me solidly in the borrow um uh camp Um, fair because like this might be saying roughly the same thing as you in slightly different words but basically i would say borrow it from your library read the first um i think the first like yeah so read the prologue and one whether you call it chapter one or whatever because um, that's only like 30 pages or so um and by that point you will know if you want to read the rest of this like if you have an impulse to continue reading it at that point um maybe even buy it just to support the the author um, yeah and that's if you have yeah, zero interest in reading it from that point You will not like your interest will not increase so um yeah that's that's sort of to me and this might just be me but like that's sort of what the borrow uh metric was was invented for like get it from your library give it a try like i i that's a higher recommendation than i gave the light between oceans um (laughs) uh but you know i would say i would say just uh just do that and um, again, like you know, it, like 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 Michael said, like it, it, there's nothing to feel bad about if uh, having borrowed it, having started it, you have no desire to go on. It's a very particular book. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yes. Um. So that done, uh, how did this book pair with your Scotch, Michael?
1: I think it was pretty good, actually. Um, the okay. The scotch itself, uh, the it, since it's such an interesting scotch, the scotch and the book kind of alternated in what I wanted to think about and put me in sure. a very sort of ponderous mood altogether. Uh, sure. So I'm going to say pretty good match. Not quite perfect. I, I think, I don't know. I I don't know if there is a perfect match to the book or if there is what it is, but yeah. this is pretty good. This I, is maybe as close as I could conceive of it getting.
0: Sure. Um, I'm actually going to say for my taste, it's a total mismatch um, because I know that with uh, the scotch you picked for Oklahoma and Underground Railroad, you wanted one that would hurt, and I feel like... <laughs> La Santa is so easygoing and like, like, just sort of uh, languid and and um, yeah, that it's 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 almost the opposite of what I would think would go uh. well with this book. Like a, a much harsher, maybe a smokier, maybe like a um, um, what's the Ron Swanson scotch?
1: Lagavulin. Uh,
0: yeah, maybe like a Lagavulin or um now i've forgotten what one we did with underground railroad but like something like that maybe would be the the ben romach that kind of had some sharpness to it it would pair way better with this book than than my like nice like the patio pounder of scotches scotch that i had um but i'm not sorry i drank the scotch so there you are Mm, yeah all right michael uh What book are we reading? It'll be next, right? Yeah. Yes.
1: Next, Next, the book we are reading, and yours is in the mail, Ethan, is... uh, And this is a book that I've had kind of on my wait list since we started this podcast, but I was waiting for the right time to do it, and I think now is the time. It is The Orchardist by Amanda Coplin. And this is a book that I read... uh, I think this was the last book that I actually read... For Pleasure before we started the podcast. Um, okay. And it was one of those things where I was like, I want to talk about this book, and I want a good venue to talk about this, and I want other people to read this so that I can talk about this with them. And that was one of the, the things that was on my mind when we came up with the idea for this podcast was, you know, I want book to talk about books, and this is a book that I want to talk about. And so now we're finally coming to it. What, like three years? Awesome four years later something yeah. like that um yeah so yes it is the orchardist by amanda coplan um when was it published 2012 um sure and um, she got her mfa from the university of minnesota in creative writing um sure started out as a short story writer and then this idea um and i'm not really giving anything away but the the idea for this book started out as an idea, and she was like, "How can I make this a short story?" And it kept getting longer and longer and longer until she was like, "No, this has to be a novel." <laughs> so, sure. um, so um, that's
0: that's what's next. Sure. Uh. Cool. That's I, I'm looking forward to that. I appreciate that. Uh, it's in the mail. Um, yours is not in the mail yet but it will be um partly because i've been i don't know why i've just been like super conflicted about which book to pick next but i have settled on just today a book called shotgun love songs by nicholas butler um i mm. have not read this book oh. um i don't i've read like part of the back cover but i try to resist reading back covers um, but the main thing that i know about this is it got a lot of acclaim when it came out in like 2014 2015 um and the author was raised in eau claire wisconsin and educated at uh uw madison Um, okay so it's a very wisconsin book which is of course something that's very close to my heart um so this is maybe kind of a risky book for me because if i mean i don't care if you hate it like you're allowed to hate it if if you want to but like if i hate it or if i think it's really bad like um <laughs> it will be more devastating than your normal run of books that i hate um but you know hopefully it's it's been on my my reading list for a while um and so i just thought i'd uh bring it bring it here now um and see so we'll both be sort of going into this one blind or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's hmm. uh, that's what I know about that. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited for both of these really. Uh, yeah, me um, too. All right, gentle listener. That said, uh, please read along. Give us your feedback. Um, the I don't know if we'll do any specials. Probably between these, we probably will, but. Um, the next major work will be The Orchardist Orchardist by Amanda Copland. So um, grab yourself a copy of that. Read along. Um, you can give us your feedback in the contact section of Uh Feel free to put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Um, tweet us at RoomWithScotch on Twitter. Um, I am at Bjartlet on Twitter. B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Michael, where are you on Twitter?
1: I am all over the place at Twitter, uh, but specifically you can find me at M G L I L I E N T H A L.
0: Very good. Um, yeah, you can also join the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. If you request to join, we'll let you in unless you're Caliban. Um. <laughs> We will also do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, but we do wish you would plagiarize just so that we can laugh at you as you get drummed out of school and um, taken away. Uh, and and that's funny to us. If you go to our website, tapestyradio.org Scotchcast, there's a form there. You can fill out current homework and fill out homework that you know is coming up in the future or that you've made up, really. We won't know the difference. Um Or past homework, stuff you've done before if you want us to take a crack at it. Um, if you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, including Intermission, the audio drama podcast, Us Play Fiasco, a rotating cast of people who play the the game Fiasco, where they um, sort of build a Coen Brothers movie um, collaboratively storytelling Um mm-hmm. And also Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon United Real Play RPG podcast. I missed one of the words. Pokemon um,
1: Tabletop United.
0: Yes, thank you. Uh, Michael is on that. Um, Michael's brother, Nick, who was forced to read this this book, uh, The Dream of Perpetual Motion, indirectly by me and hated it, I believe. Um, he did. He on that. He's, he's, yeah. he's quite creative and interesting in, in other ways, including as a, as a game master for that show, but <laughs> he did hate this book, so there's that. Um, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We don't pay to advertise, so word of mouth is the, the way that we, we uh, spread. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, write the script for a webcomic, called pinporter girl detective that's pinporter um it has very good art it has very good references to film noir and fairy tales um and yeah you should check that out um that said mm-hmm. anything else michael
1: Ah, uh, that's all for me
0: all right so until next time just remember it's our party and we'll cry if Prospero Taligent jams a unicorn horn into a horse's head in front of us. (laughs) Uh, yes.